Hey Amarillo, I'm Jason Boyette and you're listening to Hey Amarillo, the interview podcast featuring some of the most interesting people and stories of Amarillo, Texas. Hey Amarillo is sponsored this week by Jimmy John's Gourmet Sandwiches. Jimmy John's has three locations in Amarillo, two along I-40 and one downtown near the ballpark. With baseball season near, the downtown location will be open for all games. And these franchise locations are owned and operated by an Amarillo resident. This episode is also sponsored by Amarillo National Bank. With a history that dates back to 1892, A&B is now in its fifth generation of family ownership. This makes it the largest 100% family-owned bank in the United States. Learn more about A&B at anb.com. Amarillo National Bank. Amarillo before bank. Today's guest is Brooks Boyette, the executive director of Mission 2540. Now, the first thing you should know is that, yes, Brooks is my younger brother. Early in the show, when, when I was just starting this podcast, I resisted having any Boyette family members as my guests. But after 77 weekly episodes, I figure it was probably okay, and it wouldn't turn off any of my regular listeners. The second thing you should know is that Brooks is pretty interesting apart from being a Boyette if that's interesting to you. He works with kids in poverty. He performs with Amarillo Little Theater. He's a CrossFit instructor. He's one of the few working professional magicians in Amarillo. Hopefully, something about all those things has already intrigued you. So here's my brother, Brooks Boyette. I hope you can tell our voices apart. Brooks Boyette, welcome to the Hey Amarillo podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's very exciting to be here. I've been told numerous times I've been congratulated on what a great job I do with this podcast. Well, so. that's great. I've been told numerous times that I have an amazing ministry and nonprofit and that I'm doing great work in the community. So it's it's great that we can both be a part of this now. This won't be confusing at all. I, I hope people can tell our voices apart because apparently we look the same and we sound the same. That's the rumor. Okay. So... Um, I know the answers to most of these questions, but I'm going to presume that my listeners do not. So let's talk about uh, who you are and what you do. Tell me how you ended up in Amarillo in the first place. Well, I was born in Lubbock, and I think I was uh, two years old when our father uh, moved us to Amarillo, built a house here and moved here when I was two and grew up here, graduated from Tascosa High School in 1994. And then went to Texas Tech, got married, and my wife and I moved back here in, I think, 1999. This is a question that I ask to a lot of guests who went away for college. Did you go away thinking that you were going to come back here, or did you go away thinking, I'm done? I honestly wasn't sure. I went to Tech to major in advertising and really thought I might eventually end up in Amarillo, but while I was there, you know, everybody was taking jobs in Dallas and in that area at ad agencies, and that was really kind of what I thought I was going to do. Family was here. My wife really wanted to come back uh, and, and live in Amarillo, and and as I, I worked in Lubbock for a year after graduating, and really realized that I think we like the smaller town feel, and wanted to come back to Amarillo. That's where our family was, so it, it changed fairly quickly. But when I went away, I wasn't sure. Did you, I mean, did, did you intend to go into advertising? I know you studied it. I studied, I was an English major and then ended up in advertising. You were an advertising major, but didn't, didn't do that for the rest of your life. So, I mean, what was your plan at that point? Yeah, the, the original plan actually was uh, I wanted to go into broadcasting. I wanted to be a sports anchor. That was the original plan. And I went to Emerald College for a year. I did FM 90, which is still probably the funnest thing I've ever done. 
can I just say what what your um, your radio name oh, yeah. was, oh, yeah. or can you say that? Yeah, I went by Shaggy B because I just Shaggy thought, B. just thought it was funny. I think I was eighteen years old, and I thought that was funny to go by that because I don't sound like my name would be Shaggy B. So I needed a radio name, and I went with that. And so FM ninety was a was a blast. I did that, and I worked at the AC Ranger. I got you actually got me the job as the sports editor of the AC Ranger, not knowing anything. And why does the AC Ranger have a sports section? <laughs> there was no sports at Emerald College at the time. I did cover intramural. Well, I would get the intramural scores, I think, and I would put those in the in the paper. Uh, but yeah, I was. And so that was the plan until I realized. If you were going to go into sports journalism, it's a very low-paying job for a long time and a lot of moving. You have to move from market to market to market. And so I've quickly realized that about halfway through studying mass communications at Emerald College. And when I went to tech, that's when I made the decision to go into advertising because I was a creative guy and I like to write and be creative and I really enjoyed editing and doing a lot of things like that with uh, video, and so that was really the direction I took. Thought I was going to go into advertising forever. I, my first job while I was at Tech, I got hired at uh, the Fox station in Lubbock. I was there my senior year. I was the guy that wrote all the ads and directed and produced all the ads that Raymar Communications produced. So I was kind of cool, just kind of got thrown into that. And then I worked at an ad agency in Lubbock for a year there. Thought I was going to go keep doing that kind of stuff. Got hired here in Amarillo at the TV station selling advertising because I found out you can make more money selling ads than actually just being the creative guy at an ad agency. So that was kind of my early on career. How long did you do that? See, I worked when, I, when we moved back to Amarillo, I worked for the KAMR, KCIT. That's when they just combined stations, uh, which was really interesting. And I did that for a year. And then from there, I got hired to be the advertising sales marketing guy for what's still in existence now, Panhandle Presort Services. We worked in mail. We sorted mail and did direct mail. And so I was in charge of marketing that and selling it. And it's an interesting, it's it's a funny, what do you do? I'm, I'm in the mail business. The mail never stops. It was a fun, I did that for, I think, three or four years. So tell me why you are not still in the mail business or the advertising business or the creative video business? Yeah, so I made an interesting life turn uh, about, uh, I don't know, it would be 2004 when I was working at PPS, as we called it, Panhandle Presort Services. And my daughter was born. I had a son. Before that, we had two kids. And there was just a, a sense, I mean, I can't even tell you the exact thing, but there was just a sense and a knowledge that I was supposed to do something different with my life. All my life, I thought I was just going to be a sales marketing kind of guy and just had a burden in my heart for something different. You know, we grew up here in Amarillo, uh, Paramount Terrace, Austin, Tascosa area, middle class family, hadn't been exposed much to, to poverty and the effects of poverty. But there was, I don't even know what it was specifically. It was a lot of things that really, I, I was burdened and knew I'd, I needed to do something with families that live in poverty. And so... I kind of made a big change in my life in 2004. Was, I mean, a, a lot of people maybe have that kind of burden or at least have some some feeling that they need to get involved with something, but that doesn't always mean I'm going to quit my job and start something new. It, it means I'm going to start volunteering somewhere or I'm going to 
make donations to this group or something. Why did yours end up with this big career shift? Yeah, and that's kind of what I thought too. And and so I I was doing some volunteering and I was uh, helping with City Church and you know once a week doing some stuff with them. And it was still this thought that there was you know one one time a week made me feel good and like I was doing something, but I knew there was there was just more that I could do, and it was more like that I needed to do. It was just God saying, this is what you're supposed to do with your life. And so I did. It took about six months and a lot of talk and stuff. Did you feel some dissatisfaction like with your career? I mean, was, was there a sense, not just that you should be doing something else, but a sense that I didn't go to college to be in mail? Right. Yeah, there was a dissatisfaction. And, and, you know, I enjoyed my job. I enjoyed the people I worked with. It was, I mean, it was fun. And I met a lot of people. But it was this, yeah, it was just this deep dissatisfaction of this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. This is not what I'm made for. I, I have other things to offer the world. And so I really knew this is what I'm supposed to do. Okay, so there's there's a lot of ways that you can start and fund a nonprofit. You know, you can be in the grant writing business where you're you're trying to get, you know, all these different foundations to give you grants. You can, you know, have an endowment set up to fund you and and things like that. How did yours work? How did you say, okay, here's an idea. I want to do this full time. I want to go make a difference, but I also need to like feed my family. Yeah. So here's the great thing about, I guess, about Amarillo, about our community. I had a uh, I had several friends that were businessmen, a lawyer, different guys like that, that, that I, I ran in the, the circle of, of guys. And I sat down and laid out this vision for them of as, as I walked through this over the course of several months, just trying to figure out what it is I'm going to do. I, I'd realized there were some uh, low-income apartment communities here in Amarillo that is really where I wanted to f- focus what we do, um, affordable housing. And I sat down with a group of guys and said, this is what I feel like I'm supposed to do, and I don't know how to do it. And we, we went about setting up a nonprofit and then really went to individuals and said, will you support this? Whether it was uh, businesses or friends or people, we had a little banquet and raised a little bit of money and just kind of jumped out and did it. But since that time, that was like 15 years ago, we've, we're a nonprofit funded primarily by individuals and, and businesses, no grants or anything like that. So you still don't have like a foundation that you're collecting interest off of or anything like that that's keeping you afloat. Yeah, no, we we have uh, have just individuals and businesses, um, a couple foundations that will uh, give some to us that we we put in a request for. But yeah, no, no big endowment or anything like that. It's uh, kind of crazy how it works, but it's worked. So for for people that don't know, tell me the story of. What Mission 2540 does, that's the name of your organization, what it does and what the need is that, that you're trying to meet. Mission 2540, it, it comes from uh, Matthew 2540, what you've done for the least of these you've done for me. And what we do is we work in low-income apartment communities here in Amarillo. We're in seven of them here in town. We actually have one in Lubbock now, which is a whole different story. But what we do is, is we build relationships. Uh, we, we do after-school stuff with kids. A lot of uh, affordable housing communities, whether they're Section 8 or another kind of affordable housing, they get there's a relationship government-wise. They're government-subsidized. And so uh, the government HUD pays for part of people's 
rent. And one of the requirements with that is a lot of these apartments have to offer things for their community and for their residents. And so we come in and kind of fill that need, whether it's after-school activities and games with kids, uh, some places we have to provide a computer class or we have to do different things that are required. But we come in and we build relationships with the families and the kids, and we play games and provide the kids with snacks. We'll help them with homework. Uh, We do a little Bible story and build relationships from there. As a result of that, we have relationships with the families, and they have needs. Sometimes they, they can't... A lot of different circumstances I'm sure we'll get into, but sometimes we have to help people with an electric bill or a gas bill or pay their rent or help with groceries. We provide mentoring for the kids, just a relationship with the kids, especially as they grow older and get into high school. Uh, We help families with their school supplies and Christmas presents and do all that stuff all wrapped into one big package. So tell me about the families you know, who live in these government-subsidized housing complexes. Because in, in some cases, maybe the apartment complex, uh, I can think of a few in Amarillo, look pretty nice. Like, they're they're fairly new. It's not a, a rundown place. Certainly there are some that, that you work in. But the families that live there, tell me what their lives are like. Why are they in this sort of community? Every apartment complex is different and has a different personality and a different makeup. But primarily, you know, one of the things is, they're they're nice and it's a great place for families to live but but they're there number one is because you know you depending and again a lot of it depends on if it's section eight you have to be a certain percentage your income has to be a percentage of poverty above or below a certain amount and you can't make there's a cap on how much you can make to even live there so the families are living there number one is because they can't afford to live anywhere else they might be able to afford a, a, a rental home that you know, and get some government help with that. And that's sometimes tricky and the houses aren't always great. Uh, an apartment's a little more stable in in terms of uh, the ability to, to have management take care of things for you. And, and so the majority of the families I work with, you know, starting off 15 years ago, I would say 95% of them were a single mom with children uh, trying to make ends meet. Um, now we've seen in the last eight or nine years, an influx of, of refugees, which has really changed the direction we go in a lot of our apartment communities. That's made them a whole lot of fun, though. But we have uh, the refugees. So if, if there's a mother and father, they're probably a refugee family. If there's not a father in the family, this is in general. There's going to be you know, some variation there. Uh, but if, if they're uh, an American family, um, they're probably a single mom or grandmother with her children. Tell me what kids are like, or maybe what you've learned about kids who grow up in that environment and the service that you provide for them just by being present for the events and the things that you do. Yeah. You know, the thing I tell people when they ask, you know, what do you do? The biggest thing we do at Mission 2540, whether it's me or the people that work for me or our volunteers, is we come back. Every week, the kids can depend on us to come back. Because for kids that live in poverty, a lot, especially ones that, you know, that are fatherless, uh, they've had a dad leave and never come back, whether it's because of prison, whether he's just left, whether he didn't even know he had children. I've got kids that have never met their dad. I've got kids that, but for whatever reason, the dad has not come back. For some kids, it's been a mom that hadn't come back, but there's been people in their lives they don't see again. And so that creates some instability. It creates some trust issues. It creates, uh, you know, you can see it in kids. Uh, a lot of times there's fears, there's 
anger problems, uh, anger management. There's a lot of behavioral issues that come from not having a stable childhood. And, and so one of the things we try to do is come in and just provide a small little bit of stability where they can count on us one or two days a week that, hey, these guys are going to show up and they're going to care about me and they're going to ask me questions and, and I'm going to feel important. I'm, I'm thinking of you know, you working in communities that are predominantly maybe a racial minority or, you know, communities that are a refugee family, you know, that doesn't speak the language and has just showed up from another country. Are there any issues with you as this guy coming in, you know, every week and saying, hey, I want to hang out with your kids, bring all your kids here? I mean, do you have to work with the parents? How, how do you build that kind of trust with them? Yeah, you know, the hard part is, is, is probably coming into it knowing nothing, being white middle class guy. I'm sure I came into it with innocently, though, a, a white savior complex, you know, and, and here's this guy's going to come rescue everybody. You could avoid a lot more problems not coming in that way. So there is some trust. You have to build some trust. A lot of the places, though, you know, you go in and, and for one, parents are appreciative, especially in the summertime. Kids living in, the, in, in these apartment communities, they don't have vacation. They're not going to leave even that square mile that where they live. And so this is sometimes it's like, yeah, you're here to play with my kids and get them out of my house and out of my hair. I appreciate that. But there is some trust issue and some understanding. And, you know, we have to go and approach the parents as, as we're here to support you and to partner with you and do what you need to do. I'm not here because you're doing a bad job as a parent because you love your kids far more than I ever will. And you take care of them far better than I ever will. We're just here to come alongside you. And that's the way we have to approach it is we're, we're just here to help. And, and so, but for the most part, the parents are surprisingly trusting. And, and I think it's just a lot of it is because we have relationships with the management of the apartment complexes who have our back and, and announce that we're coming and they know we're coming. But yeah, we have to, you have to go in with some humility and, and some understanding as we have, especially with you know, refugees, we have so much to learn from them about being neighbors and about caring for each other that, that if we come in trying to tell them how to live, it's kind of a disaster. So you, you have to come in and just and say we're a partner. We're going to come alongside you. Yeah, I wanted to ask about some of the things that you've learned, you know, knowing that like most people, you say, okay, I need to be doing something. I'm going to start this ministry, this nonprofit, and I'm going to come in and I'm going to help you and, and fix a lot of things. And, and what you end up doing is you learn a lot. You're surprised by the people that you're theoretically ministering to. It, it ends up benefiting you. So like, what are some of the ways that, that maybe you've grown or that you've been surprised by some of this work? I think the first thing I've, I've learned and you know, people will call you a social justice warrior or a cultural Marxist, or I guess those are the things you hear on the social media these days. But privilege is real. White privilege is very real. And being middle class is, is a step up and an advantage and a privilege that, that we had. I grew up with uh, two parents that both had college diplomas. Our mom has a master's degree. Our dad's an architect. Uh, we grew up thinking colleges. Of course, we're going to college and we're going to everything we do day by day is preparing to go to college. And you know, we had a support system in place. And if you live in poverty, that is just not the case. We are not on a level playing field. A five-year-old born into poverty to a single mom is not on the same playing field as a five-year-old born into middle-class parents. You add into fact whether they're an African-American or Hispanic or a refugee, there's even more layers. 
you can argue with me all you want, you're wrong. But I, I won't argue that. Okay, I, yeah. Other people can argue with me all they want, and, and they're wrong. And, and so that's the first thing I had to understand is that, you know, poverty, so much a, a, of poverty, when you live there, it's about survival for today. You can't plan for the future. Thinking a year out is, is hard when you're trying to determine what you're going to eat tomorrow because you're not sure how you're going to do it. If you don't know, I don't know if I can pay my rent at the end of this month, which means I don't know where we'll be living a month and a half from now. How am I thinking about saving for a vehicle or saving for my kid's education or saving for, because it's, it's survival, it's day to day to day. And so there is not a lot of future thinking because you can't. Add into that fact, fact, being a single mom, you're trying to work, you're trying to get your kids to school, your car's old, it might not start this morning, your car doesn't start, what decision do you make? Either I miss work and I get fired or my kids skip school because I can't take them to school because I've got, you know, there's there's so many layers to it and it's hard and it's a difficult way to, to live. And so I think that's the first thing I had to understand. It's not uh, of what privilege is and that, you know, poverty isn't an aspect of, well, you just don't work hard enough. Well, even in the context of, of some of these housing complexes, I mean, you mentioned that in order to live there and get the subsidies, you had to have an income within a certain percentage above or below the poverty line. So let's say you are working hard and you get a raise, and for some reason that raise bumps you up two percentage points above the poverty line, above what's acceptable, then suddenly, yes, you're making more money, but now you can't live there. You've yeah. got to find something else, and that kind of throws your whole system it's back into chaos. You would be surprised. It's amazing because that also affects uh, food stamps. It also affects Medicaid. It affects so many things. Your income level. What if your former spouse starts giving you, starts actually paying child support? All that income raises your rent because you know if you're Section Eight, it's thirty three percent of your income is is what you pay. That's what you pay. The difference is paid by HUD. Is a very simplistic way of of saying how that works. Okay. So if your income increases. All your help reduces, and that income before wasn't enough to get you through. And so it's, yeah, it is hard. Kids start working. A kid hits high school. Suddenly his income applies to the mom and the family income, and things change. And so getting out of poverty is difficult. You've got to have a base, and you've got to have a support system. You've got to have a contact. You've got to have help to help you plan and get out of that because it is it is hard. And so I've seen people that realize I can't. If I You can make a decision. If I quit working, life's going to be easier because I'm going to have a little more help. It's it's wild. We yeah. we we haven't set people up for success, and it's so complex, and there's so many layers, and I don't have a solution. But good intentions from our government has actually helped keep people down. I I want to ask about uh, something you do every summer with some of the kids that you work with, just just to give listeners an idea of. What's lost in just being a kid? So, so tell me about Camp Awesome and and that weekend every summer. Yeah, this is it's really the f- the most fun we have. Uh, we have a camp and we call it Camp Awesome. I got to name it, so I call it Camp Awesome. I thought it would be a fun name. Our friends at Hidden Fall Ranch, which is incredible campground near Wayside, Texas, on the rim of the Paladura Canyon, on the other side of it, they give us a few days every summer to, to have a camp. And so we get, kind of get free reign and they send their volunteers, their, their uh, staff, several of them stay on and we do a three day camp and we take our kids, our third through sixth graders. We'll take about 40 kids out there any more than that. And I might go 
crazy. Uh, but we go, and this is our kids' vacation. You know, kids in North Grand Villas live 24th and Grand, and so many of them never even go south of the boulevard, ever. Uh, and so this is this is their chance to to get away, to get out into the country. This is their vacation for the summer, and they get to go be kids. We spend the night in their little cabins, sleep in bunk beds, have kids. Really, that there are kids we bring each year that have never spent the night away from their mom. They've never slept in their own bed because they've shared beds. They've never seen a sleeping bag. So it's it's really funny. You get some really funny questions because we give them all a sleeping bag and they see how they work and they think it's amazing. And and so we we spend the night out there. Uh, there's a they have a wall. They have to climb with a zip line and they go off. They ride horses. We go on a couple mile hike into the canyon that they think is just a march to their death because they've never been out there before. I'll take the boys out at night, and it'll be real dark, and we'll go on a little hike, and they're terrified. They've asked if there's lions, if there's bears, if there's monkeys out there, because they don't get out in nature. And I, I want to I talk about that a little bit, because there, there's an impression that kids who grow up in poverty or harsher circumstances, you know, that it makes them hard. You know, that that they end up like these tough kids or kids raised on the streets and and they're scary, you know, to typical white guy, middle class guy. Oh, those kids are trouble. But tell me how being in this new environment impacts the kids like that. Oh, it's the best. Give me the biggest, you know, the toughest kid that thinks he can fight everybody and I'll have him a puddle of mess within a day. By asking him to hike? Yeah, by asking him to go on a hike with me at night in the dark with a group of kids. So, you know, again, that's just a defense mechanism. Uh, you'll often find the biggest, toughest kid is probably the most sensitive and has probably been hurt the most in his life and has seen some things. There are kids that have seen some things that are out of a movie that I know. Uh, just it's it's unreal, and they're 10 or 11 years old. And so so many of them haven't even had a chance to really experience being a kid because they've had to step up and help raise younger siblings or they want to be tough or they want to be this. And so when they get out there and get to be a kid, you you see some walls break down and they're able to express their fear. They're able to express their anger or why they're angry. And and so that's that's one of the really neat things about it. There's a 50-foot wall they have to climb, you know, with the with the rocks on it. Um, they hooked up to the they get belayed up and they have to climb the wall and then they zip line off and yeah, I make every kid do it. They think I'm so mean because there's kids that are scared of heights, and I make them climb up it, and the only way off is to zip line off, and there's kids that will sit on top of that wall for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes. I've been up there. I went up there with a girl once, and I think we're up there for about 45 minutes to an hour. She's refusing to go down. There's really no way off the wall. They don't really want to have to lower you off. They could if they want to, but we talk them into zip lining off, and it's really because... You know their life is is hard, and and so much of hardships are about overcoming, and and so that's the lesson in it is is sometimes you have to do things that are hard, and you have to overcome them, or you can just give up, and and that's the only way to keep moving forward is to not give up, and so it's a metaphor, and you know not intentionally, I just kind of discovered that there's a reason the kids don't want to go off the wall because it's just hard, and they want to give up. Because they see that in their life, and I and I don't want them to. So we make them go off the wall, and it becomes a pretty powerful deal. And kids get off that wall and act like they defeated the world, and they're so pumped, and they thought it was the greatest thing ever, even though they just spent an hour crying on top of the wall. And they'll go up the next time again like it wasn't a problem. So it's pretty fun. 
I, I want to ask you about two interests or hobbies of yours that, that are maybe only marginally related to your work with the organization. Like most guys who run a nonprofit, I guess, you're also into magic and CrossFit. Yes. In, in equal amounts? Is it, is it a, uh, does, does one take precedence over the other? No, they're both, they're both pretty significant <laughs> things in my life that don't have much to do. Well, magic has... The CrossFit a, illusionist community is a really yeah, strong it's one. A, yeah, there's five, five of us in the nation. Uh, you know, the magic is really one of the things that helped me get an in with kids when I first started. You know, now everybody just knows I walk on the apartment complex and if I introduce them to somebody and say they're going to lead all your stuff, they trust me. But when I first go out somewhere, I, I do a few card tricks and suddenly kids want to hang out with me because uh, I can make some stuff disappear. So, yeah, I've done magic since I think I did my first show when I was in first grade at our grandmother's house. And uh, she made me a uh, top hat out of cardboard or poster board. And I had a little magic hit and did a magic show. And ever since, I've really enjoyed it. I barely remember that. So I don't know that it was that great of a show. <laughs> it probably was not. Uh, but yeah, so I d did a lot of magic, just having fun with it. And it's really worked to my benefit in, in actually being able to do what I do. Because kids think it's cool when you can do some tricks. But you also do like performances for adults and stuff like that. I mean, it, it's not just related to your ministry. Absolutely. I do not do birthday parties because I do tricks for kids all week long and it's annoying. So I don't do kid magic shows, but I do shows for adults and, you know, older students and, and that kind of stuff. It's a little side gig I have and I'll, I'll do five to 10, maybe 10 shows a year. I'll do for a, any number of people and, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's the nerdiest thing I do. Uh, for sure it is. But th there's not really a lot of professional, semi-professional magicians in Amarillo, right? I mean, I know of maybe yeah, one There may or be two. a few. You know, there was a Lindy, uh, I think his name was Lindy Martin. He used to work for the Chamber of Commerce, but he moved right. about 10 years ago. He was really good. But there's not that many. There may be a few, but people call me and ask me to do stuff just from, from word of mouth. You know, I got into... I really got into magic when I was in college. Uh, I was at, when I was at Tech. There was a magic shop. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is my nerdiest story. It is, but I'm going to make you tell we'll it. More. So I, there was a magic shop on Slide Road in Lubbock, and my wife, Sunny, when we were dating and our first year, a couple years of marriage, she was in retail, and so she worked at Gap, and uh, she was a manager there. And so her hours were she would work at nights, she'd work weekends, and so those didn't line up. So I had a lot of free time. And so on Saturdays, I would go to this magic shop and just hang out with about three other magicians. This is like an episode of Modern Family that's it, happening right yeah, now. And, and we would do <laughs> magic tricks with each other. <laughs> we would workshop and watch videos and that kind of stuff. And I went to a couple of magic lectures, uh, the International Brotherhood of Magicians. We had a... Uh, <laughs> Uh, uh, do you have a card? Is no, there a I card? Don't. But we had a we had a. Uh, there's not one. There could be one in Amarillo, but we had our own small group, the South Plains Magic Club, and we brought in uh, we brought in Daryl, who is one of the greatest magicians of the late 20th century. So great, he doesn't need a last doesn't name. doesn't need a last name. Unfortunately, Daryl passed away a couple years ago. But I went to a Daryl lecture, which was really cool to me because. He was famous in the nerd magic community. Uh, but yeah, I learned a lot of magic there. And so that's kind of where I got really into some and learned some really good tricks. I'm pretty good. As, as nerdy as it is, yeah, he is pretty good. Um, he impresses me. Let's talk about CrossFit. So you are also not just a CrossFit enthusiast, but also like a certified instructor. Yeah, I'm a certified level two certified CrossFit instructor, which is the second level of achievement. I coached the uh, 6 a.m. class at CrossFit 806, but I got into CrossFit, oh, about seven years ago. 
you had done some triathlons and and so I and I did a couple triathlons at your encouragement. I did a couple half marathons and I enjoyed that. I was getting into my early mid 30s and realized I kind of probably should start taking care of myself and I enjoyed that, but I didn't like running all day every day. And so I wanted to do something different. My friends Michael and Kyle had opened up CrossFit 806. And so I decided, oh, I'm going to go try this thing out. And, you know, I know CrossFit people talk about CrossFit all the time. That's the the big joke. But it was really great. It was it kind of did what I wanted. It's competitive because you measure your time or number of reps or whatever. So you could compete with your friends. Uh, I grew up, I'm a competitive guy, I played sports. And, and it's a chance to do that while also really seeing results and getting fitter and stronger and not being quite as scrawny and skinny as I once was. So I've been doing it for seven years. I love it. I love teaching it. It's a lot of fun to watch people of all ages get fitter and move better and live healthier lives. So it's, it's fun. I love it. Okay. So tell me where your CrossFit passion started to intersect with Mission 2540. Yeah. So this is the greatest, this is, this is a pretty cool thing. So all nonprofits have to raise money. And, you know, and that's kind of where my marketing advertising study helped. You know, I I started learning how to reach out and talk to people and raise money. And as we grew and we're adding more apartment communities and had to hire people, I've got people actually work for us. And, and there's, you got to raise money and there's only so much you can raise. We do a golf scramble, but there's only so much weight you can raise with a golf scramble or just asking people to give on a monthly basis. And so it was about six years ago, CrossFit 806 held, they hold a little competition every year in all the CrossFit community. There's, I guess, five gyms in our area now. They all come together and, and compete. And I just went to watch it and I looked around and there were almost 200 people crammed into the gym, cheering and watching people lift weights. And I looked at Michael Hanning uh, and I said, man, it would be cool to turn this into a fundraiser. We, we could do something here. And he said, yeah, that, you know, we started brainstorming of how we could do a, a competition that raised money. And we were having breakfast one morning and I thought, and we were just talking about it. And I said, you know, what would be really cool is if we did this, but we brought in like somebody that's famous, that's a CrossFitter. And the most famous CrossFitter of them all is Rich Froning. Kind of the Daryl the Magician of the the CrossFit community. He's the Daryl the Magician. He's bigger than Daryl. Daryl was, yeah. Uh, But if you do CrossFit, you know who Rich Froning is. If you don't do CrossFit, you might know who he is. He's he's been. You'll see him on ESPN. He was the fittest man on earth. He's won the CrossFit Games a bunch of times. And at the time, he was at the peak of his fame. I think he just won his second CrossFit Games championship. I mean, he's got a million followers on Twitter and Instagram, and and. A lot of people don't know who he is, but if you CrossFit, he is like, I don't know, the Mike Trout of, you know, or the Pat Mahomes of CrossFit, CrossFit. I guess would be your good example. The LeBron James, really the LeBron James of CrossFit would be the way to say it. And so I said, Michael, we should try to bring him in. And he said, how do we get in touch with him? I don't know. He just got on Twitter and tweeted at the, at the time, the guy that was Rich's uh, agent and said, hey, how can we get Rich to come to Amarillo? He said, here, email me here. So we emailed, got in touch, and it kind of set this thing up and and brought in Rich Froning for the first year and kind of built a relationship with him. And we got along really well and kind of became friends and just started working out with each other. Just I would text him and say, hey, can you come in April? And and so this worked out to where Rich has come, I guess, the last five years uh, to come do a CrossFit competition. 
And every year he brings in somebody different that's famous and we in the CrossFit world and we hold a big CrossFit competition and it's it's a pretty bit people come in from all over the place and it's turned into the big fundraiser for Mission 2540. It funds so much of what we do it's we've expanded we've grown out of this fundraiser it has allowed us to do so many more things and so our growth as an organization has been really the direction we've gone has changed because of what we've been able to do with this fundraiser you speak pretty humbly of the rich froning connection but it really is like say you know he's the lebron of crossfit it's like deciding we're going to have a little basketball game here in Amarillo as a fundraiser, oh, but LeBron comes every year to play in the game. And sometimes he brings Steph Curry with him. Sometimes he brings Kyrie Irving with him. I mean, it, it really is a big deal that he comes here and he works out with Amarillo people. Yeah, and he doesn't do many of these in a year, really. He doesn't do it much. He likes to be with his family and and stay. In, he lives in Cookville, Tennessee. doesn't do a lot of these. He just likes us and he likes our community. And so he, he, he does it. Our people, all the CrossFit community in Amarillo, you know, it's just really cool. You get to go take pictures with the guy and sign autographs, and it's it's pretty wild. Yeah, if if you're in the CrossFit world, you think this is the most awesome thing you'll ever experience. It's pretty neat. So that that event's coming up. Yeah, it's coming up April fifth uh, and sixth, and this year. What's the title of it? What's it called? It's called Feed, Clothe, Love, and Lift. Uh, our little tagline, Mission Twenty Five Forty, is Feed, Clothe, Love. Uh, that all comes out of Matthew chapter twenty five. So. Created the event called it Feed, Clothe, Love, and Lift. This year, Rich is bringing, and this is this is the biggest one we'll have at maybe ever. He's bringing in a, a woman named Tia Claire Toomey. Uh, she has won the CrossFit Games the last two years on the women's side, and so she's the she's really like the new big name in CrossFit. Rich in Cookville, Tennessee, has kind of become the mecca of CrossFit, and so when people want to become really good, all the professional guys, they come and work out with him, and Tia is from Australia. She and her husband moved to live in Cookville this year and train with Rich, and so when I asked Rich, uh, I guess in October, I I said, hey, I want to bring in a female to to partner with you, and he said, how about I ask Tia, and I said, okay. (laughs) I didn't think we would go that big name, but uh, so he's bringing her in, and and so they're going to compete. We're going to auction off the chance to work out with them and be a partner. But we've got 40 teams, two-person teams, that are competing alongside Rich and Tia on the 6th. And uh, we've got teams from Wichita Falls, from Oklahoma, from Lubbock, uh, possibly Odessa. I've heard some from people from down near San Antonio that want to come up because how often do you get to see the two fittest people on the planet work out so yeah and they're actually working out as teams competing against the team of rich and yeah tia. yeah and so rich and tia won't win or get a, a gold medal or anything but uh, they'll win they they will win so what really what we're doing this year is instead of them partnering with each other there are four workouts so there's four workouts they do on a cumulative score based on all that but workouts one two and three we're going to auction off the chance to be tia's partner and the chance to be rich's partner so you can make them lose and that's fine rich will probably glare at you he's very competitive no not really he'll he'll be, be nice a lot to of you pressure it'd be a lot of pressure um and so you can be their partner at the last workout they'll work out together but it's just a it's a chance to say i competed against the fittest people on on the planet and people can come just come watch even if you're not on a team or anything like that you can come observe oh the, yeah you the should day. yeah it's at the amarillo netplex and uh We'll have bleachers, and it's six dollars to come watch. And you just come sit and watch all the competition, and it's it's pretty neat just to watch local people doing everything they have to 
exercise and, and compete. It's a lot of fun. Barbells throwing around. We've got 20-foot ropes. People will be climbing, running around, riding uh, stationary bikes, a lot of fun stuff. So but before we close this section, I just want to ask you, as somebody who's been in the nonprofit world here for 15 years, um, you've you've done the the big event fundraising, you've done the individual you know donations route, all that stuff. And tell me what you've learned about this community in terms of its generosity and the organizations that that are here working with people. I don't think you'll find a more giving community than Amarillo, whether it's area businesses or the people. When there's a need that arises, a we step up and we meet it. It's never been a challenge to raise funds because people want to give and they're looking for a place to give. And we've got a lot of incredible, we've got a lot of nonprofits in Amarillo. And so when you see a big list of however many we've got, maybe over a thousand, but you know some of them are booster clubs and some are you know smaller deals. But there's no shortage of nonprofits, but there's also no shortage of funds for the nonprofits and and. I've got so many friends in the industry that are doing incredible stuff, and we work together, you know, whether it's Dyron Howell at, at Snack Pack for Kids or Jeff Parsons with Mission Amarillo, um, my good buddy Brady Clark, Square Mile Industries, he's on my board. You know, a lot of us, we work together and we talk and we collaborate, and it's not a competition for funds because we have a generous, generous community. This week's presenting sponsor is Amarillo National Bank. ANB isn't just the leading bank in the area. It has been a leading member of the Amarillo community for 127 years, almost as long as Amarillo has existed. Now, my history with the bank isn't quite that long, but I opened my first checking account with ANB around 1990 or so. Every single mortgage I've ever had is with ANB. My business accounts are with ANB. I've gotten business loans from Amarillo National Bank. My kids' first bank accounts were with ANB. My favorite nonprofits in Amarillo all have stories about Amarillo National Bank's support over the years, from High Plains Food Bank to organizations like Mission 2540, my brother's nonprofit. And when I'm traveling places and I want to brag about what makes Amarillo such a great place to live, I almost always end up talking about Amarillo National Bank and the Ware family. That long-term focus on Amarillo businesses and Amarillo people is part of this area's secret sauce. I really think that. Learn more about the bank at anb.com. Amarillo National Bank. Amarillo before bank. Okay, we're back with Brooks Boyette, um, who's the director founder of Mission 2540 and also my younger brother by about two years. Actually, by two, almost exactly two years. Two years, one month. Yeah. Exactly. I was born December 6th. He was born January 6th. I don't know why you care. Small miracle. Yeah. It's it's a miraculous thing. All right, Brooks, this is the part of the show I call Eight Straight. I'm going to ask you eight straight questions. Your job as my guest and my younger brother is to answer those questions in as much detail as you want. The I will do my first best. first one I've not asked of anyone else, um, and this is only because you're a member of the International Brotherhood of Lubbock Magicians or whatever it's called. Who's the best magician to come out of this area? Here's a little-known fact people might not know. Uh, the great Roger Klaus from Borger, Texas, is one of the greatest magicians that probably ever lived. He passed away like 10 years ago. Klaus, you've never heard of him. He's, he's, he was famous as an underground magician, which means all the tricks that you see the important people do. Like David Copperfield, yeah, Copperfield David Blaine, or somebody yeah, like that. Yeah, Chris Angel, David Blaine, Shin Lin, the new guy on mm -hmm. America's Got Talent. 
Roger Klaus was an underground magician, and these are the guys that actually develop the tricks. They develop the slights. They come up with the mechanics of the card tricks. And Roger Klaus was, uh, I'm not even sure how he became so big from Borger, but he he actually was a part of the inner circle of the great Di Vernon. And <laughs> Di Vernon is like, he's the- Di Vernon, he's like associated with Magic Castle. Yes. And like some of the one big- of the fa- One of the founders, he's known as The Professor. He lived to be 100 years old and was doing magic up to that time. He was at the Magic Castle in his 90s. But Di Vernon is the greatest card magician probably ever. Uh, Ricky Jay, who passed away recently, ever, most people know Ricky Jay. Ricky Jay was part of Di Vernon's inner circle. So was Roger Klaus. Klaus in the 50s said, you know, there are some things that Di Vernon showed him that only like five or six people knew. Magicians closely guard their secrets. Um, there were some that Di Vernon would not reveal to anybody. Roger Klaus was one of them, which is crazy, and he's from Borger. And the reason I know about this, going back to our my little Lubbock gang, we, we would watch Di Vernon videos. He he had a, a series that was released called Revelations. It was about, it was like almost all his tricks sitting down with some guys. And we had discovered through that about Roger Klaus and Borger, and this guy from Plainview decided he was going to go up and meet him, and he went to Borger and tracked down Roger Klaus and met him and sat down with him for a while and I've got one trick from him with a dollar bill that I learned. But yeah, so yeah, Roger Klaus, he was okay. one of the, <laughs> if you look up Di Vernon, if you want to see what, he was kind of a crusty old man that knew everything. What's your favorite Amarillo restaurant? I'm going to, I'm going to list two. Okay. Uh, for date night, my wife and I really like to go to Joe Taco. That's the place we like to go. Uh, she loves the stuffed avocado and I eat about five or six different things. Just good Mexican, good Tex-Mex food, good spot. We like to go there. Um, for an out-of-the-way place in, in one of my neighborhoods, 24th and Grand, a place called Tombs. It's uh, Thai, Lao, and uh, Chinese food. And Tombs Restaurant is great little hole-in-the-wall in the shopping center where Hillside North Grand Church Campus is just down from there. Uh, Tombs has great fried rice, great chicken curry. I recommend the Tombs fried rice. It's fried rice with sausage, crab, Chinese barbecue, and chicken on the fried rice. It's really good. What does this area have too much of? I think this area has too many chain restaurants on I-40. And I get that it's I-40. Yeah, there's a reason stop. for that. Yeah, there's a reason for that. But there are so many chain restaurants. And then you see them shut down, and then it just leaves an empty building, and we have so many great local eating spots. And so I'm going to say chain restaurants. Is, is there a chain restaurant like that you would go to if, I mean, that, that you appreciate? I appreciate Chili's. <laughs> <laughs> still spoken like a true Tascosa High School student it's because of, from 1993. That's right. It, yeah, if you if you said what chain restaurants do I like? I mean, I I enjoy I do enjoy Chili's. All right. I'm trying to think of others that I I mean, I will still frequent some. I just feel like there's just so many. What does this area not have enough of? We don't have enough Trader Joe's because we have none. Ah, that's that's true. I would love a, a Trader Joe's, uh, more whole food kind of places for healthy food. Also, I, you know, if you want to get even deeper, though, I don't think we have enough empathy. Okay, go with that. In what, Amarillo. Tell me about that. I, I think we need more empathy. I think, you know, spending my time with people that have, you know, you know, talk about the, a refugee community, people that have escaped poverty, famine, and war, and, and brought here to Amarillo, and immigrants that have come from all kinds of stuff to come here to Amarillo, and and have so much to offer us and and learn from. And and I think our people just living in poverty and just thinking, hey, just work harder and come 
if we had a little bit of empathy and could understand where they come from and what it's like to have lived the lives that they have lived, I think it would change our attitudes towards it and and the way we talk about refugees or the way we talk about immigrants. If we had a little bit of empathy, I think it might change that and it might change our attitude a little bit. So I think we need I think we need some more of that. How do you describe Amarillo to people outside the area? Say like you're you're pitching an event for Rich Froning or something. He's like, what in the world is Amarillo, Texas? Where is it? Yeah. What am I going to encounter there? I do always say, and flying in with him into town, it's flat, it's windy, but really, this cliche answer, the people are super friendly. You're not going to find a more friendly bunch of people than than Amarillo ones, and that's how I describe it. And And I also say, you know, we are more diverse than you think we are. Sometimes it seems like we've got one mind and we've got one thought towards whether it's politics or the world, but we really are diverse people with diverse viewpoints and diverse interests, and there's a whole lot of diversity here, and there it, it really is. And I think the perception is just a bunch of Republicans and cowboy hats, and, and there's more to it than that. What's your favorite neighborhood in Amarillo? God, this is like asking you to choose your favorite child. Who, which which of your children is your favorite? Yeah, though? well, that's an easier answer. It's Blythe, right? Uh, yes. Okay. My youngest, it's easy. That's why I tell the other two. Um, you know, I really like the neighborhood. I would call it 24th and Grand. That's where the first apartment we ever worked at was the North Grand Villas. We also worked to the apartment immediately to hit south, Kathy's Point. And across the street from 24th is Mesa Verde that whole neighborhood and the elementary school. And I do stuff at, at Mesa Verde a lot. I do a, a Friday lunch thing with some of the boys there. And uh, so that whole 24th and Grand area, you've got Travis Middle School nearby. You've got Tombs Restaurant. I, I love that neighborhood. Tries Marketplace. If you've never been to Tries to see the kind of food you can buy. Coolest grocery store it, in Amarillo. That's a great grocery store if you want to. And you can go even to Pride's Home Center right next to it. But I, I love that neighborhood just because – it's it's where I discovered my purpose in life is out there at the North Grand Villas and and so I love it. It's always near and dear to my heart, and so I would say that whole area. All right, cool. What uh, when was the last time you went to Cadillac Ranch? I think it was five years ago. Uh, when our kids were all in elementary school, we would always do something fun the last day of the summer. So we'd go bowling. We and so I think about five years ago we decided we'd all go to Cadillac Ranch. We went out there and spray painted the cars, and it was windy and fun and crowded. I guess, but that was a the last time I do, I do remember walking out there and I think this was like in middle school when my friend Neil lived in the Puckett West. And one time we just decided to walk to Cadillac Ranch and you could just do a straight shot because there was nothing west of Sonsi. And so, yeah, it you, was just open. Out it there. was just open field. And so we just walked along that open field all the way to the Cadillac Ranch. There's maybe a couple houses because it was ranch. You kind of had to walk around some barbed wire. But now you couldn't do that because no. there's so much more development there. OK, and then uh, the, the last question, what's your favorite local coffee shop? I'm going to go for sure with Palace, uh, mainly one it's close to me. Also, I know Patrick. and Patrick's an awesome guy. And whenever I go to Palace, I know all the people that are the one on 34th and Coulter is the one I often go to. And I'll, I'll go to the one downtown and I'll go to Roasters. I'll have meetings at, at Roasters a lot as well. But I, I really like Palace mainly just because I like Patrick and I like the, the vibe there. It's a good place. Okay. That concludes the eight straight questions, Brooks. I like to end by asking my guests to endorse something related to the area. So tell me something that you want listeners to know about or to experience. I think what I want to endorse is, is something important that Jesus said, which was to love our neighbors. And I think it's kind of hard 
to love a neighbor you don't know. And we have a bunch of neighbors here in Amarillo. And, and I found one question I get asked a lot is, is uh, especially by people on the southwest side of town, is maybe, where's Paladora High School? Or I don't even know where Travis Middle School is or Mesa Verde Elementary. And, and I think it's because sometimes we, we stick in just a small segment of Amarillo instead of expanding and exploring Amarillo and meeting our neighbors in other parts of town. And so I, my endorsement is get out there and drive around and go to another neighborhood. Go find where Paladero High School is. Go to Mesa Verde. Go to 24th and Grand and, and see the shops that are there. Go to down the boulevard and see a lot of the food trucks or the African Brothers store or there's a lot of great places that, that you might not have seen. Uh, we have a really diverse bunch of neighbors, and, and when we stick in one part of town, I think it makes it hard to really love a neighbor because we don't know them. I mean, it, it, there really isn't much excuse for that either. I mean, for staying in one part of town. I mean, if, if you watch sports or anything like that, if you like basketball, go to Paladero and watch a basketball game or go to Travis and you know watch him play football or something like that. It's not that hard to you know, to go intentionally to another school or to another neighborhood just to do something there. It doesn't take 15 minutes to go across town. Check out, go to Eastridge. Just go see the number of different faces and, and worlds that are represented just in the Eastridge area. It's it's amazing. Yeah, there's there's no reason when it takes 15 minutes to get anywhere. I, uh, I approve of that. That's a good endorsement. Brooks Boyette, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Hey, it's exciting to finally be on. And that concludes the episode. I want to say thanks to Jimmy Johns and Amarillo National Bank for the sponsorship and to my brother Brooks for the interview. You can learn more about his organization, his upcoming Feed, Clothe, Love, and Lift event, all that stuff at mission2540.org. Now, this show is produced, written, and hosted each week by me, but it's edited every week by Angelina Medina. Executive producers of Hey Amarillo include Chris Elda, Josh Wood, Patrick Burns, Jennifer Callahan, Corey Burns, Daniel Davis, Wilson Lemieux, Katie Linger, Neil Nossiman, Ryan Pennington, and Wes Reeves. You can be an executive producer, too. Or you can stand alongside the show at some other support level at patreon.com slash Hey Amarillo. Thank you for listening. My name is Jason Boyette, and I'll see you next week.